and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 30th, 2023. It is uh, the last day of June. Um, yesterday, we did a show with a French writer, French journalist and fiction writer, Clemence uh, Michelin. She has a new book out, The Quiet Tenant. It's a book about um, a serial murderer. Um, it's a book about violence against women. It's a novel. But uh, Michelin is also a journalist. Uh, she works for the London Independent. She's based in the U.S. Um, and, and as we talked, she suggested to me that she believes that fiction, in terms of uh, the narrative as a writer, needs to be what she calls more realistic than nonfiction. In other words, it needs to convince the reader that it's somehow more real. Um, as it happens today... Um, we have um, another uh, fiction writer, someone with a new novel out. Um, it's called uh, Night Bloom. It's a book about, in some ways, violence against women. Some of you will be familiar with uh, Peace Ajo Medier, her first book, His Only Wife, um, was described uh, as a, a rich Crazy Asians for West Africa did enormously successful. She's also an academic. So like Michelin, she has parallel lives as a fiction writer and as a nonfiction expert. Uh, her last book was Global Norms and Local Action. She teaches at Bristol University in the United Kingdom, and she's joining us now. Um, congratulations, peace on the new book. Uh, tell me a little bit about um, how you view this. Uh, as I said, uh, Michelin suggests that uh, fiction writing must be more realistic than nonfiction. I know you borrow some of your research for your fiction. Do you think she has a point here? Do you have to convince the reader that it's real more than when you're writing nonfiction? Hmm. Well, I, I definitely think that depending on the type of fiction that you're writing, you want it to seem real to the reader. And when I write, I tend to, I do spend a lot of time in my head. And I, and in doing that, I am almost kind of steeping myself in the sounds and the sights that I'm trying to describe. And this is because I want the reader, when reading my book, to feel like they're in the book, they're experiencing what's happening, they're walking in the character's shoes. So I, I, it was the kind of fiction that I write, yes, I think that there's a need for it to be real and for the, for the reader to feel like they're living the experience. I didn't bring this up with Michelin, but it, I, I wonder whether also part of the process is convincing yourself as the writer that your characters mm. are real. Yeah, I think... Am I convinced that my characters are real? I, my characters do come to life and it happens really gradually. I think in the beginning, there's almost this, they're almost one dimensional when I start thinking about them. But then as I start writing, they really develop, become fuller. And in that way, they become real to me. And I guess at that stage, I'm convinced that 
they are real. There's this thing that I do when I'm, um, I'd be walking down the street and I will see like, I know, a restaurant and I will say, well, them, I filmed the character in my first novel, the main character. Would she love, would she love eating in this restaurant? Because basically the, the, the characters become so real that I can imagine them living a life that is really complete, that is outside of the book. As a, shall we say, a, a dialectical quality to your new book, Night Bloom, it doesn't have one main character, it has two female characters, dominant, living in parallel. Um, does that, as a fiction writer, does that help you make them more real if you have two women who exist in parallel or in some ways opposites, in some ways twins? Well, I think what... What it helps me to do is basically show the complexity in their life and in our life because um, it's so it's, it's this character. It's the story has two characters and they are telling the same story, uh, but from two very different perspectives. And I think in doing that, what I wanted to show and what I hope that I've shown is that. In many ways, there are multiple truths. And my first character, Kofa, she tells the story first. And it's easy to see her as an unreliable narrator. But I think more than that, what I want to do with her story and Selassie's story is show that two people can have very similar experiences and come out of it thinking that they've had very different experiences. And that at the end of the day, no one is necessarily lying, but that they are describing the truth as they experience it. So that was the challenge when I was writing the book. That's really what I was trying to get at this idea of uh, more than one truth and how we live with these truths. Yeah, again, uh, I think I brought this up with uh, Michelin on the, uh, the quality of Rashomon in your book of uh, of, of, of thinking about actual events in, in very different ways, remembering them differently. Um, the New York Times gave your book a very nice review, talked about two divergent girlhoods in Ghana, united by the same debt. What, what was or what is that debt? How are they united, these girls? Tell me a little bit about them. Yeah, so it's uh, Akofa and Selassie. These are two cousins grow up really close or start start off life very close. And over time, a rift develops. And Akofa eventually moves to the U.S. Um, Selassie stays in Ghana. But we follow them for about 20, 30 years and just see how their experiences are separate. But at the end of the day, um, the same and basically very similar. And the debt, I mean, I think there are several debts, but I think the, me, the main debt in this book is the idea that one person owes the other because of the social class that separates them. And so Akofa is well off, her family is relatively well off and Silas is not so much. And for much of the book, we see Akofa's family given and Selassie and her family receiving. And it's this debt that shapes much of their interactions and eventually that causes a, a fracture in their relationship. But it's, um, so it's, it's this, so there's this debt between these two characters, but it's also about family expectations 
and how in so i come from ghana and in ghana there is it well among many families there is this expectation that when one does well you know it's your responsibility to an extent to support others in your family who did not do so well and so it's it's that debt that the very successful person owes to the less successful person or less successful people in their family and it's kind of at the core, or it's one of the things that's at the core of this story. Of course, in America, the American myth or the American narrative is we make our own histories. Given that tradition in Ghana, does it suggest that people believe in the idea of luck, that some people win, some people lose, and it's not necessarily a reflection of their abilities or hard work or lack of hard work, so that everybody owes the unlucky something? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there might be an element of luck or people might think that there's an element of luck, but I think it's also the realization or the recognition of just the really difficult socioeconomic circumstances in which we find ourselves. And that some people, I guess, through luck, through hard work, through having the right connections, are able to somehow come up on top while others aren't. And, and I think that, that then contributes to the idea that, okay, we're all in very difficult circumstances and you've succeeded. Um, and therefore, it's up to you to help others who have not been as successful. You've written extensively on violence against women. It's your academic expertise. How central is violence against women in this, in this novel, Night Room? Yeah, it's, I think it's really central. It's, so I wanted to write a book about violence against women, but also recognizing that when people experience violence, they also experience a host of other things, that their lives are filled with joy and laughter, but also sadness. And therefore, it is a book about violence against women, but then we see our characters live in very full lives such that it's, their lives are not overwhelmed by this experience of violence. But yes, it's very much a book about violence against women and not so much about the act itself, but what the act does to people and how the act shapes lives completely, the lives of the person experiencing or the life of the person experiencing the violence, but even the people who surround the person. I've spent many, many years um, doing research on violence against women. My doctoral dissertation was on the response of violence against women in Liberia. My book, Global Norms and Local Action, the Campaigns to End Violence Against Women in Africa, is about the comparative study of Liberia and Cote d'Ivoire. And it's basically about how these two post-conflict countries have responded to gender-based violence. And so violence against women is very much a key or a core part of what I do as a researcher. And when I, you know, I've done over 300 interviews at this, at this point. And when, I've, when I did my interviews with survivors of violence, what came, what, what came through very clearly was that people wanted their stories to be heard and even if they didn't, weren't necessarily expecting anything, they weren't expecting me to solve their problems. They weren't expecting me to help. But what they wanted is 
that they, they wanted their story to be heard. They wanted me to hear their story and to recognize the gravity of what had happened to them. And I think I, based, I brought that into the book, this importance of um, people's stories being heard and the importance of showing how this one incident can change people's lives. We've done many shows, as you can imagine, a piece on um, the consequences of European colonization of Africa, and one recently with a Stanford historian, J.P. Dorton, on the impact of French colonization of Central Africa. Of course, violence against women is universal. Um, as I su suggested at the beginning, Clemence Michelon has just written a, a novel about violence against women in the United States. But is there something unique about violence against women as a legacy of, of European colonialism in Africa, or is that a, a rather trite generalization? Oh, no, it, it isn't. And I mean, there's really interesting historical work, for example, on, um, on Kenya. I, I read quite recently the Mau Mau movement and the, the, the British um, administration their use of violence against uh, the population, including women, so the use of gender-based violence. And, and, and you, you do see this in many colonial forces. And in fact, uh, the, the police, as it was created in many African countries, was created to protect and uphold um, the colonial administration. And that meant that at times, violence was inflicted on people including women, and in some cases, gender-based violence. So I think what is interesting in trying to connect colonialism to violence against women, one way that it's, it's really obvious is in security forces, because I study security forces such as the police, hence my focus on this. But you can easily see how security forces that were created to um, protect these administrations used violence and over time it becomes a key part of the um the response to 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 protest the response to people opposing the government in any way and so one can look at colonial forces and their use of violence and then trace this to to the current um, political period and see how these forces are continuing to use gender-based violence to, um, to silence protests, to, to intimidate people. And so, yes, there's definitely a connection that can be made. You talked about memory earlier. We did a show with a Nigerian um, writer, Emmanuel Iduma. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. I think he's based in the UK too. Um, I am still with you, uh, a reckoning with silence in inheritance and history. It's his memory of the Nigerian civil war. Um, why is memory so important in, in, in your book, in your thinking, in Night Bloom? And again, coming back perhaps to Iduma and what you were talking about earlier, memories of injustice. Yes, because I think in, in the book, what memory does is it helps our characters to live with themselves almost 
So in the book, Akofa has been accused of doing things and she's denying it. And she's managed very successfully. And I think a lot of people do this well um, in constructing history and creating a version of history that makes her, I guess, more comfortable um, and that makes it easier for her to live with herself. And so I'm, I'm, what, what I really do in the book is explore this manipulation of memory to fit our purposes. And memory here is so very important because it then makes it possible for someone like Akofa to say, I have done the right thing and I don't owe anyone anything. And so this is the role that basically memory is playing in the book is helping this character or the character is constructing a version of history that absolves her of all, all wrongdoing and I guess makes it easier for her to sleep at night. Akofa comes to America uh, to study medicine. And of course, America is a place which imagines new beginnings where you can forget an immigrant society. You did that. You, you were a graduate student in America. You came, I think, from Ghana. You have your PhD. Uh, is it a, 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 a particularly difficult step to go from a, a place like Ghana to the United States, given this ideal of beginning again and being able to forget? Hmm. Well, I think generally it's, it really differs for people de depending on where you're coming from in Ghana. And I think there's something that I really explore in the book where a Kofa comes from a middle class or maybe even upper middle class family. And she, I mean, race has been important in her life, but always far in the background. And she's never had to think in her day to day about how something like race matters. And she comes to the US and is very shocked by how, um, by how much race begins to play a role in her life. And so I think it really depends on the social class for a lot of people that are coming. I think there's a tendency to think of um, immigrants or Ghanaian immigrants or African immigrants are all, as all very similar, but not at all. Um, people have like really varied backgrounds. So Akofa in the book, for example, has traveled to the U.S. many times, has come on holidays, and her life will be very different from someone who has never been to the U.S. and has never interacted with people who've lived in the U.S. But still, when she comes, she is shocked and in, in many unpleasant ways by how the, 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 the fact that she comes from Ghana she comes from an African country, causes people to have certain expectations of her, often very lowered expectations. So she's, she's, she's extremely brilliant. She's always done well. And when she comes to Ghana, she, she comes to the U.S., she's surprised by how much people don't expect her to do well because of the color of her skin. And I think this, this part comes from, partly from my own experience, but also from... Um, from friends, um, the, the, this idea that you there's no way that you you got here because of your intellect, 
um, someone must have felt sorry for you, for you to be here. And um, I think this is something that a lot of people struggle with when you are not coming from a country where something like race is supposed to be the thing that shapes your abilities. Do you have any feelings, Peace, on the recent yesterday's decision by the U.S. Supreme Court on affirmative action? Some people would argue that uh, doing away with affirmative action makes it clear that people of different skin colors uh, don't get into certain universities or do well because of their color of their skin? Well, I, I do. I think affirmative action is important simply because people are not starting off at the same place. And that the fact is that some people just have an incredible amount of advantage. And so to pretend like we're all the starting from the, the same place and that we've all had the same amount of opportunities, academic preparation, and that we can compete on, basically to pretend as if we are competing on a level playing field. I feel like that is um, just, not, uh, that just not true because it's not a level playing field. So I do think there is a need for some sort of attention to this disparity the attention to the fact that some students are just not starting off with all students don't have the same advantages when they're starting off and that there's a need to provide some kind of support for students that don't have um the 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 necessary the the, the, pr the preparation um and whatever else is necessary to get into these universities but what about for a fictional character like a Corfu who came from Ghana, middle class, upper middle class girl, always done brilliantly from a, a well-off family? Should she be thought of in the same way as uh, people say from the United States, just because of the color of her skin? Well, I think it's not necessarily where the person is coming from, but the socioeconomic conditions. Right, that's my point. No, it doesn't really matter where they. Yes. Yeah, so for me, it's, I mean, Akofa would not need affirmative, any kind of affirmative action, any kind of, of support, because she was coming from a place where she already had all of these things. But I think for students who just have not had the good fortune and just the luck, because a lot of it is luck, like being, yeah. born, in, being born in the right family, uh, being, you know, being born in, I don't know, in a, in a community that has like a library and that has after school programs and things like that that make it easier for, for young people, for children to advance. A lot of it is luck. And so for the children that don't have that luck, there is a need for some kind of program that helps them advance. Do the characters in your book, the two characters, the two main uh, female characters, Selassie and Akorfa, do they think about luck? Do they philosophize about it, about good fortune or bad fortune? Mm. No, so... I... <laughs> Akofa is, they don't, they, well, Akofa doesn't. Akofa comes from, like I said, a well-off family and she's brilliant. She's gone to the best schools in Ghana and she's excelled. And she, she thinks that I worked hard and I have what I have because I worked hard. And if you don't have what you have is because you did not work as hard as I did. Yeah, it's a very, you find that in, in the US and Europe as well. It's a very upper class thing. 
Yeah, and this is not to dismiss the importance of hard work. Hard work is very important. But then I come from a country where some of the hardest working people are also some of the poorest people. You know, I was I was raised by a grandmother who was a farmer and would walk many miles to her farm every day. And I mean, just worked so very hard. And yet, you know, she was never able to go to school. She could not read or write. But as one of the hardest working people I know. So basically, I, I know that hard work is important, but I also come from a place where people work incredibly hard. And that does not lift them out of poverty. That does not give them, that does not always give them the opportunities that they deserve. And so when Akofa refuses to acknowledge that, well, hard work is not the only thing that matters, that in some ways is one of the things that I think make her a very flawed character. But then I love writing about flawed characters. Uh, I know you're involved with the, the periodical uh, African Affairs. I think you're the... Uh... Are you the, the editor or of, of African Affairs? I used to be un until last year. I was editor okay, so of editors of African Affairs. So yeah. you, you obviously, given you're from Africa, uh, you write novels about African characters, you've written academic books. So you have a give a great deal of thought to how Africa is represented, particularly in the West, since that's where you live. We had a show a few months ago with an interesting historian, John Parker. He used to teach at SOAS. You're probably familiar with his work. Um, he has a new book, Great Kingdoms of Africa. And when um, Parker came on the show, he suggests that we, I mean, academics, writers, people who comment on Africa, need to, in his language, liberate African history from the colonial narratives of oppression, suffering, and powerlessness. Is that in a sense, what you're doing in, in your work, particularly in Night Bloom, it's, would, would, do you think of this as a, perhaps a, a post-colonial novel? I, when writing, when I was writing His Only Wife, I was very much focused on where it fits in the larger body of writing on, on Africa and the need to write of Africa in a certain way, not to, to reinforce the very negative ideas that uh, exist about Africa, especially in the West. In, with Night Bloom, I tried not to focus too much on that because I think too, too much attention to that then might take the book in directions that are not necessarily true to the story or true to the characters. However, what I do in my writing because of you know, my, my knowledge and understanding of how Africa has been written about, how Ghana has been written about, is that I make sure that I show the complexity of the place, wherever the place is that I'm writing about. And that is to say that if I'm going to write about poverty, I would also write about, about wealth. And if I'm going to write about violence, and this is something that I'm very aware of because, you know, there's this, you know, the feminist literature in Africa, you know, talks about how there's this idea that the Africa wom African woman is always downtrodden and is suffering and is, um, you know, just her whole life is just struggle. And that is not the case um, for the majority of people. 
And so I'm, I'm very aware of that. So when I write about something like violence, I, I want to make clear that not everybody's life is um, it's, you know, characterized by this violence, that there's, there's, there's a great deal of diversity in people's experiences. So yes, I'm aware of how Africa has been written about and the way that I try not to reinforce is, is, is to demonstrate the complexity that exists on the continent, that exists in Ghana, um, such that no one reads my book and comes out thinking that, oh, all Ghanaians are victims of violence, or all Ghanaian women are victims of violence against women. That's something that I, I want to avoid. But at the same time, I don't want to spend too much time thinking about what the reader is thinking, such that I am not writing what I truly want to write. Peace. Finally, uh, I, I'm sure this book will be read widely in Ghana itself. For a teenage girl, um, perhaps a younger version of yourself, what would you like a, a young woman or perhaps a young man in Ghana to take away from this new book, Night Bloom? Yeah, so that, that's another thing. I In the beginning, I thought I knew exactly what I wanted the reader to take out of the book. <laughs> and then as I wrote, I was like, I just... What I want is for people to know that this happened. And going back to what I said earlier about speaking to survivors and how they just wanted their stories told. So to me, that was just really important that I'm telling this story and that in telling this story, it's in some way validating people's experiences, people's feelings about what um, happened to them. But if, if nothing at all, I would like readers to at least see that or know that there are people who want to listen when there's violence, that people, there are people who want to listen and there are people who care. And I say this because in, in a lot of my research, what I, what I find is that people are very much ashamed to say I've been a victim of gender-based violence, I've been the victim of sexual assault because of the response, because of the shaming and the stigmatization. And so if nothing at all, I would like that if pe people read this book and realize that you can't speak up and that there's, there's nothing to be ashamed about, that you can't speak up and that there are people who care and there are people who want to listen. So yeah, I, I think that's, if there was any lesson, I think that would that would be the lesson. <laughs>